0: We absolutely have to stop that. Even if many people are going to be getting ill, we need to moderate that flow through our hospital so that we can postpone death for for as many of them as possible.
1: Hi, I'm Fee Godley, and with me for this conversation about COVID are two regular BMJ columnists, Matt Morgan and Helen Salisbury. Matt, do introduce yourself.
2: Hello everyone, Uh, so my name is Matt. I'm an intensive care consultant working in Cardiff, in Wales, and I'm also the lead for research and development in critical care for Wales.
1: Thanks a lot, Matt. Helen.
0: Hi, I'm Helen Salisbury. I'm a GP in Oxford. Do quite a lot of teaching of the students and junior doctors here, Uh, but my main job is just looking after patients. Thanks, both of you. Um, Matt, I, I was very struck
1: reading back over some of the things you've written and your open letter to patients in which you said um, that this had been the longest six months of your and your colleagues' lives. It, it certainly has been a long six months. What, what, can you give us some of your your highs and your lows?
2: Well, yeah, it, it's definitely been a long six months, and that's not to underestimate how difficult it has been for people not in healthcare. And I guess, in a way, some of the highs are the uncertainties we've been dealing with relate to the things in our job and less so the things in our lives. You know, in many ways, I've been going to work the same as I always do. I'm paid the same amount as I'm always paid. So that security in terms of living with a family, I've got two young, young daughters, is a, is a huge thing. So if anything, that's been one positive and it's easy to forget you know, many people out there. Uh, that isn't the case and that, that must be so hard. In terms of the tough times, I guess that probably relates to the things people know about already, that families often can't be there for patients when they need them the most. Although we've, we've tried to ameliorate that as much as we can, certainly in intensive care where I uh, work and live. And I guess the other thing I'm struggling with more now than ever, perhaps, is is division. You know, in, in Wave One, if you want to call it that, we were all together as a society, as a profession, uh, as, as a world really. And that was pretty unique. And now it feels because of uncertainty, which is inherent in science and medicine, it feels we are more divided than before. And I think that's going to be one of the big challenges actually going into the winter.
1: Helen, what about you? You've written in particular recently, very movingly, about the need not to forget about older people, and, and Matt, you've written about this too. Um, older lives are not worth less, you said. and and the the, the the big division at the moment about whether we should be just screening the elderly or, or sorry, you know um, shielding the elderly and letting everyone else uh, allow the virus to rip through.
0: How does that feel in general practice at the
1: moment, that that debate?
0: Um, I don't think there is any real debate in general practice because actually I don't think that that opinion is held in in any scientific or medical circles. I think it's I think I mean it's quite got quite a loud voice, but those of us who actually work on the ground and just see how communities work. You can't you can't hive off one section of the community. We don't even know who's vulnerable. Still we don't. We know older people are um, and we have a suspicion that there are some um, particular groups that are that are more at risk whether that's to do with um, the pre-existing conditions or, or ethnicity or obesity you know the, there are things that make people more at risk but we can't say exactly who's going to do badly and we also don't know who's going to do badly in terms of the very long-term effects of um, Covid that didn't take them to hospital so the young fit people who are still young but are no longer fit once they've had Covid um, and we don't know how long that's lasting for certainly I've got patients who are very sick still um, so I mean I don't think that that, that division exists within within medicine um, but as Matt was saying we were there was a, a a unity that was there right at the beginning and that is now Missing, I think, partly because of a sense of right at the beginning, there was a feeling that um, politicians and leaders were doing the best they could in a in such a uh, a place of unknown. We just didn't know what was going to happen next. Now there's a much feeling as we we kind of we've been here before. We do know what happens next. Can you just get your act together? And so I think there's a huge amount of frustration here that. steps that we need are not being taken and most of us can see this this wave this huge wave approaching and that's quite scary
1: and what are you seeing on the ground now are, are hospitals filling up our virtual waiting rooms filling up um it feels different this time because it's the sort of second time round or, or or another wave but what what's what's the reality on the ground Helen are you
0: well it's interesting um it's still it's still distant. Um, we know the cases are out there. It's a little bit difficult to get a handle on numbers because there are different testing systems and you don't get all the information aggregated properly. But um, through the um, official system in the last uh, 28 days, we have only had 20 more cases. So that's not, not huge. Um, but I also know of whole families where only they were ill and one of them managed to get a test. So, you know, I'm a bit sceptical about that. But the university has a system, and last week they did 800 tests and 200 of them were positive. So, you know, that's really quite high numbers in the first week of term for, for, the, for the colleges here. So it's, there are not many patients with symptoms yet calling us partly because um, the, a lot will, will go through the, what are meant to be the dedicated channels and particularly if it's a lot of students many of them are not very severely ill so they don't need intervention. Some of them do but not very many. So it's more that sense of impending um, crisis rather than, rather than actually having hit yet. And Matt what about in, in intensive
1: care Uh, are you um are you finding yourselves stretched again
2: well i think some of the differences between this and wave one was that this is much more dependent on local outbreaks and local numbers. You know, if you're working in Liverpool, or indeed if you're working in some of the South Wales Valley hospitals that have had outbreaks, then this is, you know, already as bad as the first wave. One thing to say is, well, the data is all out there and published and transparent already. You know, you can go on the government's COVID data panel and look at numbers, and we know in hospital it's around um, up to about a quarter perhaps compared to the peak numbers of admissions to hospital with COVID-19. And in intensive cares, it's you know, perhaps uh, around a third of patients in intensive care compared uh, to the peak, for example, but this is really local dependent. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing to say, but you have to remember wave one as much as possible work was, was paused. And so we were really dealing with critical life-threatening things, although we did continue cancer work and heart disease work and stroke work. And now in wave two, we're trying as much as we can to run in parallel. And if there's one thing more predictable than the John Lewis advert Every Christmas – It's front page newspapers saying that the NHS is on its knees in winter. So this is on top of that, uh, which is why, you know, it's different uh, than wave one in in many ways.
1: And what what, um, do you feel? I mean, we've talked about the fact that the politicians – Surely, you know, they should have got their act together by now. <laughs> um, and, and we've got a piece from from Martin McKee and David Stuckler in the BMJ this week talking about the fact that it, the issues aren't aren't scientific, they're political. It's about implementation, it's about the failure to implement what we know works. Um, you know, tr- trace, track, and trace, and, and isolate, and all of those things. But in, in medicine, um, I would say my understanding is we have to some extent got our act together and we do know a great deal more and you've written you've both written about this about you know which which I feel is quite a hopeful um, message to people Matt will you just give us a sense of what those things are that, that we've learned in the last six months that we're now able to apply for people who come in a very sick in hospital
2: you know, well it's, it's remarkable how much more we knew compared to a virus we, we didn't even know the name of just over six months ago and I think Britain, patients, families, doctors, researchers should be really proud of that actually. You know the recovery study run out of the University of Oxford has shown that a simple, cheap, relatively safe drug, dexamethasone, can reduce deaths of the most critically ill people on breathing machines by as much as a third. You know that's a remarkable amount and for a drug which can be used globally because it's cheap and accessible. It can also prevent people needing to come to intensive care in the first place. You know, Some of the evidence around other drugs like remdesivir is a bit more difficult. Perhaps it shortens duration of illness, but nothing much else. But importantly, we also know what doesn't work. And they aren't negative trials. That's a hugely important thing to know. We don't want to be wasting time, money, and resource on drugs or interventions that don't work. I think in the intensive care community, in the respiratory community, in the anesthetic community, we also now are using more forms of oxygen via the face, like CPAP and high flow nasal oxygen, which will hopefully help reduce the need for invasive ventilators, although the evidence is still difficult. And we have teams of people, which we call merit teams, that have protocols, policies to go out and help people. And I think this issue about delaying, you know, some people say, well, intervening now simply delays things. Well, guess what? We're all going to die. <laughs> the mortality in medicine over the last six million years has been 100% for everybody. And medicine's in the business of delaying death and promoting quality of life. So the thought that that in itself isn't a good thing is bizarre. And what's more, by delaying things, if you were ill in April compared to June, after the recovery study was published, you were far more likely to survive. Plus, we've been talking about a vaccine maybe being there. So this concept of, oh, well, we're just shifting the inevitable, you know, I, I just can't sign up to that.
0: I think the other point on that is that um, it's really important that we, don't, that, that we cope as a system. And if you can delay some people being ill, then perhaps more of them will, will get the expert administrators of people like you um, and actually make it through to the other end. Um, so th- th- those really nightmare um, scenarios that we saw in Spain and Italy right at the beginning of this pandemic of people lying in hospital corridors because there weren't enough staff and there weren't enough ventilators and there weren't enough medicines, That's we, we absolutely have to stop that. Even if many people are going to be getting ill we need to moderate that flow through our hospital so that you know we can postpone death for the for as many of them as possible and ideally postpone death for decades and that's our job isn't it postponing death uh,
2: and i think you know intensive care has been in the news a lot because it the pictures are dramatic and you know it, it, it's seen as that that end point but this shouldn't be about intensive care you know the best way to survive intensive care is not to come and actually, it's the whole hospital system. You know, this is ED doctors, this is community workers, this is GPs, respiratory people, and it's the I'm incident. really sorry,
0: Matt. Actually, I think it's public health, and yeah. I think you know, it's how you organise a whole thing so that they don't get COVID in the first place. Yeah. Um, it it comes back to to really. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm always going to get political, but if you get to things like. Um, There's been an announcement they're going to share track and trace data with the police. I mean, do you want to put people off having a test? Because if they have a test, then they risk the coppers coming around to check they're isolating or their mates when they've been traced. So, do you do that? Okay, I guess you're going to have not going to run out of tests if you put people off having them, which might be a plus point for the government. Um, or do you provide a really good um, package of support so people are absolutely encouraged to test and to isolate so we can reduce this this number? I mean, it really is just so important to stop people getting infected. I, 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 I don't know. It's difficult not to get downhearted at how badly this is being run from a public health point of view and that's not to do with the public health physicians i really don't think it is it, it as as fee was just saying it's political
1: i, I think i think it is deeply frustrating for, for, for everyone watching this how, how poorly that is being done in the uk i'm sure in other countries too but but it's been it's been really de- desultory um and we will hopefully have um a public health person on on the call next week because i think this is a huge issue for us as a country um the failure to 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 implement basic public health and as you say not the fault of the public health Uh, experts or clinicians or physicians but um, really a a political failure I would say. Can I ask though also then about I mean you mentioned that the the purpose of medicine I'm sure you don't really both think this is to delay death Um, it is that but it's also surely to improve quality of life and there is the worry isn't there about the long-term effects of Covid people who come off intensive care whose lives have been completely changed and they're never going to fully recover and then you've got the, the, the whole long COVID um, problem. I mean, I mean, Helen, are you in
0: general practice seeing a great deal of that? Um, I've got still got some patients who come and see me ab- ab- about it, but I think quite a lot of them have um, almost given up because there's not very much I can do. I know they're still out there because I talk to them sometimes and I know quite a few of them are still not better. We now do have um, some post-COVID clinics set up Um, some of them by respiratory physicians particularly for the lung issues but also ones that are run by um, physiotherapists and psychologists and all sorts of other people who can help people rehabilitate Uh, but it it clearly is a thing and it's something that is different in flavour from chronic fatigue syndrome which I've met before Uh, it's difficult to understand because a lot of people will have everything you can measure comes back normal but they're not they're people who ran five miles three times a week before covid they had such a lot of reserve even though they were very ill they never needed to go into hospital um, but now you know they walk quarter of a mile and they feel rubbish um and that's that's horrible but then reevaluating who they are and trying to work out what sort of future they might have Yes, and and Matt,
1: what about the the, the long term impact as being on intensive care, or whether or not you're ventilated? Um, are there things that can be done to try to minimise that and 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 deal with that at the time?
2: Yeah, well, I think this is one of the issues about using uh, death as one of the only binary outcomes to look at, really. You know, to say that somebody who spent three weeks in intensive care and needed a tracheostomy but survived, well, that's okay because they survived. You know, of course it's not. That's a life-changing experience to go through, not only for that patient, but for their family, for their future finance, for their future psychological and physical health. Um, You know, I think we've long recognized that surviving critical illness leaves scars physically and psychologically and in recent years we've recognized that more with providing follow-up clinics for example and that covid has brought that even more to the forefront so there are certainly unique things probably with with covid and long covid and critical care covid but there's also challenges in post-sepsis survival and post-cardiac arrest survival uh, and so on so we're really trying to target help for all people who survive critical illness but, you know, as Helen said, and others have said, the best way to avoid that is not to come to critical care or hospital in the first place, really.
1: Yes, and, and not, to get in, not to get infected. Um, all of our working lives have changed so much in the last six months. Um, and, and obviously, a lot of the work that you now both do will be through virtual consultation, virtual co- collegial discussions. Um, how, I mean, personally, I see that as a, as a huge huge improvement I mean in many ways and you know climate change and all sorts of things will will are on the on the um, discussion about you know how how will this change the way we work uh, do you see that as a positive thing Helen do you see it as a I mean there's a,
0: a mixed picture for general practice yeah I mean I think it's possible that the students I'm teaching now will be much better at it than than I am having been growing up through this Now, but I feel I I really miss the 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 physical element of my job. And actually, I am seeing quite a lot of patients face to face. We're, We're just at a tipping point now, having sort of relaxed a bit and having more patients in. We're now having to go the other way again. I like seeing patients. There's a there's a sense in which even if I am really pretty sure that I'm going to examine people and that examination will be normal it is very, very much easier to reassure a patient that that's the case when you've seen them and examined them. I think there's something about the remote consultation, particularly phone, which is what I do most of the time, which is more transactional and less relational than actually having someone in the same space that I'm in. I think at the moment, Mark, the success of my remote consulting is very much piggybacking on the relationships I already have with patients because I've been around in the same practice for for a long time. Um, And I I just think it's harder. It's harder to do well and it is a less rich experience for both the, the doctor and the patient doing everything remotely. What about you Matt in hospitals? How does that play out the virtual side? Well
2: I think we're lucky in many ways in certainly in critical care it's still very much a present uh, in the moment with patients kind of specialty you know it has to be to some extent. I think what we have found is many of the allied roles so perhaps the administration the managerial side of it and clinics like follow-up clinics are done remotely. So I've got a consultant meeting this afternoon, which is all remote. I've got a follow-up clinic that we're doing for survivors of critical illness tomorrow, which is all remote. And I think that's great in many ways, but you know there are disadvantages and certainly learning the, almost the morals and the ethics of interpersonal communication that way is hard. I found you've got to assume positive intent when you're reading things that are not spoken in person. That's been really helpful. And, of course, those corridor conversations where lots of small problems get solved before the big meeting uh, is missing to some extent. And the huge thing that we're all missing uh, is families. Families play such an essential role in the management of people when they are critically ill, be that working out best interests, be that just being there physically and I think that's one thing that I'm sure families struggle with hugely and it's something that we, we struggle with as well.
1: And that sort of brings me in my own mind onto, onto the whole issue of PPE and protection. I mean um, so getting families to the bedside um, with adequate PPE is obviously you know one of the challenges we face and, and making sure that the staff have confidence in the PPE. Do, are we are we better prepared this time?
2: I, I think we are. You know, there are stories in the media that you can read where you know very sad stories that families haven't been able to be there. You know, most places I know about have very clear policies that, for compassionate reasons, they can be, and that doesn't have to just be end of life care. For example, it can be other compassionate reasons. Uh, and you know there is the facilities to provide pp for family members and, and train them in its use i think one of the big challenges we had in wave 1 wasn't so much the absolute lack of it we were lucky in critical care that we didn't have phys- we didn't have actual shortages of numbers what we did have is a huge number of changes and whenever a mask changes because of supply You need a process of retraining, and that in itself was exhausting and hard. We have invested far more in different kinds of PPE now, which are airflow devices, which don't need recurrent changes and don't need the fit testing uh, before. Plus, it shows a full face. It allows communication. It's more comfortable for nursing staff and others to wear. So that's been one big change, actually, but we, we still can't have units for everybody, for example,
0: I would love some of those masks with that that were completely clear. Because um there is a thing that even when I do see my patients face to face, it's actually face mask to face mask, and you're losing a lot of the cues that you normally have. Although I did have a delightful conversation recently. I mean, I have delightful conversations with my deaf patients. Well, I just have to open the window. That's the only option to do is open the window and talk because and and put their chair a little bit further away um, because if they lip read, I can't we can't wear masks. Um, But it, but it, and I think we do have at the moment enough kit. Um, I think that the issue more is about for us is about getting the people seen in the right places and trying to keep our surgeries as COVID-free as it's possible to be. Obviously, there may be people coming in with symptoms that are not typical, and we have no idea that it's COVID before they come. But if people have got a cough and a fever, we actually don't want them in our building, really, because we've also got vulnerable people coming into our building and actually trying to sort that out at a local level so that um, we don't mix the two streams of the vulnerable and and the sick with COVID. Is quite important. Uh, My particular bugbear at the moment is that there's loads of money out there, apparently, for general practice, which is earmarked for employing more physios and social prescribers. But we don't actually have a capacity to train physios and social prescribers at the moment. We need COVID clinics. uh, And and so there's a bit of a frustration that um, we're not going to be able to control the infection as well as we'd like to in our surgeries because the money's going to the wrong place. And I, I, that's what you've written about this week, Helen, because oh, yes. i just read your column. Yes. Uh,
1: no, no, it's fine. I, and, I, and I also, it's about the training, isn't it, of the next generation. I, I do wonder about how how are medical students and junior doctors going to train in the current environment?
0: It's really, really difficult because uh, the medical schools have absolutely no option but to provide people who are badged as competent by August next year, because there needs to be a flow of F1s into the system. Um the new junior doctors who've got to start but an awful lot of your learning is going around the boards finding patients who've got interesting stories to tell or or chests to listen to or hearts and actually that's not really happening now it has to be very much more structured and very much more controlled so that serendipitous learning they had isn't happening sitting in in clinics is happening but it's hard and there's some skills really difficult to pick up in covid times how do you learn to do good eye examinations or throat examinations when actually those are quite high risk procedures to do so so yeah we we actually have a a problem with the training of both medical students and and to a certain extent junior doctors matt how
1: how is training going to work in hospitals
2: yeah, again, it's it's hard. I think one thing this has done is given an absolute shove to digital for both the NHS and for education. And, you know, that serendipitous learning is is fab, but wouldn't it be even better if it were planned? efficient learning so rather than there's somebody happens to have aortic stenosis who wanders into uh, the waiting room you know of course that needs to be a, a planned intervention now you can't simulate everything you can't organize everything but there's some ways to go in in terms of that and I think that's the same for the NHS in terms of digital I think in addition the people who qualify now they will be hugely more skilled, perhaps, <laughs> in some other things, You know, perhaps the critical appraisal of evidence-based medicine, uh, the sense that even intensive care isn't just about fancy treatments and machines. It's about care. It's about staff. It's about working together. Communication strategies, digital competency, dealing with criticism online and dealing with public engagement of science. You know, I think there'll be some things which uh, they'll be much better than me and some of my colleagues at, which will be a welcome relief.
0: I, I really get the thing about the deliberate teaching. We're working hard to um, create uh, learning events where patients with very specific signs are very... Uh, are paid to come and talk to the students about the things and be examined. And so you know that by the end of this particular workshop, all the students will have seen a case of so-and-so and learned a case of so-and-so. But it's hard in COVID times to make that happen. We were already doing it, but it's it's just doing all these things in a way that doesn't put anyone at risk is, is difficult.
1: I wonder what um, what you would call your most fascinating fact about COVID. I, I've got one, but um, or not a fact, but an explanation. Um, Matt, any any fascinating fact? Well,
2: bizarrely, I've been looking into the history of steroids quite a lot. You know, steroids and critical care is a topic that's been ongoing for decades, and they come and they go, and they come, and of course they are here now because of COVID. Uh, and in fact, one of the first people to actually produce cortisone, uh, Louis Fischer, who was a chemist in Harvard, was also the same person who uh, sadly uh, invented napalm, which was one of his biggest regrets, if you like, of his life. And he was forced into this by uh, the invasion of Japan in the World War. So um, I found that pretty fascinating and I've got lost in a podcast, a Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Revisionist History, which is worth listening uh, about the history of that.
0: Great. Helen, what about you? I have n- nothing to compete with Matt's amazing contribution there. I suppose for me, it's this um, decoupling of low oxygen levels with the feeling of breathlessness, because I had always put those two in my mind. And now to realise that my patient who doesn't feel the least bit breathless maybe dangerously short of oxygen is something that completely blows my mind and I'm still getting my head around but I know I need to know it because I need to find other ways of finding out whether my patient sitting at home on the other end of the phone is ill is very ill or not They're very important clinically. Mine comes from a piece that Carl
1: Friston, the the statistical modeler, has written us. He's written two pieces. This is his second and really good. And it may seem obvious to you, but I was very helped by his explanation of second wave versus secondary wave. And um, the second wave is people who've been infected being re-exposed to the virus. This is like in Spanish flu two years later. But the secondary wave, if that's the right phrase, is is spread to communities, not heavily impacted in the first. And that's what we're experiencing now, you know, in the north where, where they shut down early Um, and and maybe didn't get quite the same level of exposure. And he talks very interestingly about about why we need a national circuit break, because it's about not spread to individuals, but spread into new communities that we've got to try to prevent. So I I was was very, very, very interested in that. Well, thanks to Matt Morgan and Helen Salisbury for joining us. You can read Matt and Helen's columns on bmj.com. We're planning a weekly podcast recording these discussions to take the temperature of the second phase of COVID-19. If you have questions you'd like our panel to discuss, we'd love to hear them. You can share them with us on social media at BMJ Latest. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on our next panel discussion. Until then, I'm Fee Godley, thanks for listening.